2: President Trump said there is a, quote, very good chance to make a trade deal with China, but that unrest in Hong Kong is a, quote, complicating factor. He was speaking on Fox and Friends earlier this morning. He also said that he would not commit necessarily or didn't necessarily say uh, whether he was going to sign the bill that was passed by both houses of Congress, basically saying that 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 the U.S. stands by Hong Kong. Brendan Murray joining us now. Bloomberg's uh, Bloomberg's reporter and editor covering all things trade. Can you give us a sense of where we are and what kind of credence we can give to a statement like this by President Trump?
3: Well, you heard uh, the president say, uh, send a couple different signals there. One was, yes, we're very close to a deal. But he also talked about some of the tougher issues that uh, they still have yet to to, to resolve. Uh, among those being uh, the intellectual property uh, oversight that China, that the U.S. wants China to have greater uh, control over, and 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 the, and the forced transfer of technology. So these are these are issues that uh, you know that, that they still have yet to uh, to come to an agreement on. Uh, you know, Trump has said for weeks now that uh, we're very close to a trade deal. It was six weeks ago today when he sat in the Oval Office and said, "We have a deal. All we have to do is get it on paper." Uh, so. Uh, and he said we could do that in three to five weeks. Here we are week six, and he's still saying it, and we still don't have any sign that uh, that that an agreement is, in fact, imminent. Um, it could come any day now, or it could drag on for several more weeks. So, Brendan, both sides, the U.S. and
1: China, have said that they ideally would like to keep the Hong Kong issue and the trade
3: negotiation issue separate. Do you think that's possible? Uh, I think this is one of the things that, uh, that 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 President Trump will offer as a concession to uh, his Chinese counterpart. If if they can indeed get close to a deal, he he could just say, you know what, I won't sign that bill. And but, you know, this is what I want from you. It's 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 leverage uh, in, in trade negotiations. And and uh, and that's that's what this piece of legislation uh, is likely to become.
2: What are we hearing from the Chinese side?
3: We heard uh, President Xi Jinping speak overnight about the need for mutual respect and equality in a deal, which is uh, which are some guiding principles that China has demanded all along. But is that significant?
2: Uh, Because I saw that headline and I was thinking, how do I frame that in terms of does this make a trade deal more or less likely?
3: It is significant when you hear President Trump, as he did just, uh, you know, a few hours ago, say, I don't like that word equality. China has been ripping us off for decades now. Uh, you know uh, th- this can't be a fair deal. This is going to be a deal that benefits us. So you you add those two things together and you've got two leaders who are still uh, apparently very far apart.
1: Brendan, what are next steps? I, th- I think the last thing I read was a us delegation had been invited to Beijing by China. Is there anything on the calendar?
3: We don't uh, have any information uh, that that invitation has been accepted yet. Uh, that that uh, w- uh, was made last week, and uh, the, uh, the U.S. Trade Representative, Robert Lighthizer, has been running around Capitol Hill the past few days trying to work out the uh, U.S.-Canada-Mexico deal and get uh, uh, Speaker Pelosi to sign up to that, so he's had his hands full with With some other things, now, he he can do multiple things at once, but uh, his priority is not uh, flying to Beijing in the next couple of days uh, and certainly with the u s. holiday next week, you know, uh, it's it would be uh, it would be a stretch to think it could come together before the middle of next week,
2: as Paul was mentioning, the uh, trade negotiators on both sides are trying to distinguish the Hong Kong issue as unique and separate from other negotiations having to do with trade. What's the tipping point here uh, for when that is impossible?
4: Well, I think the real
3: it, this whole thing will, I think, tip. Uh, When the U.S. uh, agrees or disagrees uh, to roll back tariffs that are already in place, that seems to be where uh, the U.S. is, uh, you know, China really wants the U.S. to, to give some ground on that. And the U.S. is, you know, the whole the whole U.S. economic strategy with China is to apply tariffs and keep them applied until Uh, You extract, uh, you know, changes out of China that, uh, you know, bring it more in line with, uh, you know, other sort of market economies. Uh, So uh, that is where sort of the rubber meets the road in in this whole in this whole saga. Um, The Hong Kong uh, issue, as President Trump said, you know, is definitely complicating things. But whether it's enough to, you know, totally throw it off the rails, uh, you know, is a is a different question. I, 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 I don't see it happening.
1: So, Brendan, we're talking really about a phase one type of deal. That's all we're talking about right now. Is that right?
3: That's right. So, phase one, as President Trump laid out a couple of weeks ago, involves agriculture purchases on China's behalf. Uh, you know, protection of intellectual property of, of, of American companies, and some of these other sort of structural issues. Uh, whether they can get those, uh, you know, is a whole nother question. The, you know, they've we've heard, you know, phase two will, be, will come right afterwards and maybe even a phase three. So, uh, you know, these things were we're about to head into year number three of these negotiations with, you know, not even the, the simplest yep. issues worked out in phase one. Uh, so we could be, you know, we could be looking at something that lasts, you know, through the election next year and, and beyond perhaps. Brendan Murray, thanks so much for joining us. Brendan Murray covers all things trade for Bloomberg
1: News. Joining us from our London bureau...
2: If you dig under the surface of credit markets, you can find a bit of a conundrum. You can see that everything seems to be chugging along on average. But if you take a look at the riskiest credits, the triple C rated debt, it has sold off and continued to sell off with yields on the securities, extra yields now rising to the highest since 2016. Joining us is Ken Monahan, co director of global high yields at a Mundi pioneer uh, in our uh, Bloomberg Interactive Broker studios. Ken, do you think that this is a harbinger? of more pain to calm the weakness that's been persistent within the triple C rated uh, category here?
5: Well, Lisa, you know, the triple C portion of the market has often been viewed as kind of a big risk indicator for the overall credit markets. And when those trade to very high levels, which they're at right now, where spreads are wide, yields are high, and they've underperformed woefully in 2019, usually people say, okay, well, that's a sign of not such good things to come and perhaps a recession. I would think in this case, actually, it's a little different because there's so much of it that's tied up with the energy sector. And then a few other idiosyncratic situations that uh, that's really driving it. You know, You know, we had said earlier that sometimes <clears throat> triple C's are the tail that wag the dog. This time, I don't think the fact that the, dog, the tail is wagging that hard is indicative of a, of a major problem.
2: And this is what a lot of people are saying. This is a specific sector issue, energy. And then there are a couple of retailers, et cetera, uh, that have also struggled, along with some pharmaceutical companies, a number of other uh, types of stories. I'm just wondering what it says about a time when we have so much central bank liquidity, when we have, you know, such a risk on kind of overall feel that there are an increasing number of companies going bankrupt, even in some of these troubled sectors.
5: Right. Well, you know, I think the energy is is a key piece of that. And, And I think if you look at the energy sector and you recognize how much money had gone into it, over the previous 10 years and really facilitated the expansion of the shale boom in the United States, um, you maybe had too much money chasing too few opportunities. And I think if you look at those companies, by and large, they have not been able to uh, generate a sustainable return on capital. And companies that can't return uh, capital or generate a return on capital over time just can't raise new money, which is why these companies are in difficulty.
1: So I actually talked to a lot of distressed investors, and they are actually highlighting energy as one of the sectors they think they can actually find value and add value. Is it if, if you do your real bottoms up research, are there still opportunities there?
5: I, I think you're right that there are opportunities and uh, you know, I, but there they're not a whole lot of them out there. Okay. I think you really kind of look under rocks here. Um, and, uh, but there are some out there and I think we are looking at them, but I, I would not expect in 2020 necessarily that you'll see a wholesale return or surge of returns for the energy sector. And if you do, because it's not impossible. What it'll probably indicate is that a lot of the companies have washed out of the index. So when a a company goes bankrupt, it drops out of the index. So if you had enough energy companies going bankrupt in early 2020, um, the rest of them that are maybe sustainable, they could have a big rally.
2: How far in the shakeup are we?
5: It's interesting, I was up with uh, the capital markets team of one of the largest banks yesterday and, uh, and talking to them about it. And it's amazing how few companies have gotten religion. Um, you know, they were offered uh, second lien paper early this year at seven percent. Then by midsummer, it was nine percent. Now they're at maybe eleven or twelve percent, and, and they still haven't gotten on board. They still haven't figured out. There's still hope springs eternal, but you know it's the old <laughs> adage, hope's not a business plan, and uh, and we're we're stuck in that situation right now for many of these companies.
1: All right, so energy's uh, dicey only for the the brave. What are some of the sectors that you think are attractive right now? I mean, the high yield market, I guess, up 11, 12% this year. It's had a pretty good year. Are there still areas that you still find attractive?
5: You know, it's it's uh, we're still looking under rocks as well okay. in general in this market because the the returns have been so significant this year. Let's recognize though what happened is in the fourth quarter of last year we all expe- right. experienced misery. If anything you had that was risk, whether it was equities or high yield, got absolutely pummeled. So effectively the return that should have taken place in 2018 got sucked into 2019. So effectively it has supercharged the performance for 2019. But where we look at when we look at things where they are now, it's much going to be much more difficult to generate a return next year. 2020 is not going to be a double-digit year for, for high yield. It's just not possible. What's it going to be? I, I think you're looking at kind of mid-single digits. It could be even lower, depending on what happens with the washout of certain sectors like energy.
2: Do you think that you are guaranteed bigger returns going into the double B or into the single B or into the triple C? <sighs>
5: That's the big question. I would tell you that the problem with double Bs, Right now, is one, they've got a lot of interest rate risk on them. Uh, and two, the other problem I would suggest is that there's been so much money that's gone into double Bs from what we call crossover investors otherwise investment grade buyers that are so desperate to get some extra yield into their portfolio that they're dipping down into buy things they don't normally buy double b credits that they've compressed the spread on those bonds and if we look at those new issues that come out recently over the last several weeks for example in the double b space very few of them are trading up significantly they kind of come out they price at par a four and a half four and three quarter coupon and it just sits there now arguably Yeah, maybe if, if, you know, if it stays there at that level for all the 2020, a four and three quarter return may not look so bad relative to investment grade, particularly if interest rates rise a bit from here, but it's not exactly uh, attracting a lot of interest. So outside of energy, how's the credit quality in your portfolio? I would say, that you know, if we look at our portfolio, historically, we generally own credits that on average are rated about a notch below that of the index. So we tend to seek, seek value in single Bs. And that's where we are right now. It doesn't mean we're not buying double Bs. We are. We're a bit more selective about it, but we're very much overweight single Bs. We're kind of underweight double Bs and we're about market weight triple Cs right now.
2: How close are we to our session?
5: um well not between here and Christmas how's that and uh I don't think it's Merry Christmas yeah, thank you for yeah yeah uh, for we that can you know, and I don't think it happens in 2020 either but we'll uh, you know it'll remains to be seen obviously the uh whatever happens we supposedly are on the verge as we have been for over a year now it seems of uh of a, of, a, of a completion of these trade talks uh and uh that, if that keeps getting pushed out or uh, there's more saber rattling that goes on on either side uh, that
1: could
2: facilitate if, something if
5: yeah all right all right
1: I
2: mean come on this is literally what we live every day <laughs> so Sorry. so Ken just real quickly what's
1: the, what's the most attractive area that you guys are looking at right now
5: you know it, it's interesting the it, the auto sector had been beaten up fairly bad okay. um, and there's a bit of a recovery going on there we've found some opportunities there and that's one of the places where you would point to where there's uh, it maybe had gotten oversold. People thought perhaps a recession was yep. coming. People Peak were going to sales were going to come down, and that really has not happened.
2: Bonds backed by uh, the Cybertruck. That's right, exactly. <laughs> not. Maybe
1: not. Hopefully not. Ken Monahan, co-director of Global High Yield at Amundi Pioneer, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. He's based in Durham, North Carolina, home of the Durham Bulls, uh, amongst other institutions down there in Durham. Uh, looking at a quick data check right here, the S&P. We are absolutely flat on the S&P today. No change, Dow at 42. Uh, NASDAQ off uh, just a little bit looking at yields again not much movement there The 10 year up 330 seconds pushing that 10 year yield down just slightly to 1.76 percent compare that to the two year uh, at 1.61 percent so the curve flattening just a little bit this is Bloomberg
2: Is the era of forecasts. A lot of the big banks are coming out with their 2020 predictions. Joining us now is Dan Skelly, head of equity model portfolios and market strategy. at Morgan Stanley, wealth management, joining us here in New York. I'm trying to understand uh, the consensus so far, which is a resurgence in a way, at least in equities next year, that potentially you could even see double digit returns uh, in the US and perhaps even bigger in Europe. Do you agree with that consensus?
6: So I think that at this point in the cycle, you want to be more selective in the US market in particular. We think there's less upside to the index in the U.S., where we could see more absolute returns is overseas, in Europe in particular, just given how much it's lagged, and then also given the potential for some uh, rising catalysts on the fiscal front. You know, the only game in town forever in Europe has been monetary stimulus, and I think should we see some fiscal improvement there, uh, that could be a
1: potential catalyst. You think we will see that? Because I know, you know, particularly Germany, which is where everybody, I think, kind of focuses, has been pretty resolute in saying they're not into that game.
6: Yeah, so I think that's an interesting question. It's right now I would label it a small probability, okay. but a rising probability. Well, Madame
1: Lagarde it, from the ECB, maybe she's the, you know, the she could be the change
6: catalyst, agent. Yep. I think Merkel, who had always been loath to do more spending, is obviously leaving. So I think that swap in personnel is actually net positive for the for the potential. Um, and, you know, listen, when you heard Mario Draghi on his way out addressing policymakers, he was basically saying we've gotten to the point of diminishing returns on negative interest rates.
2: So I'm trying to understand how much a trade truce is priced into the idea that we're going to see pretty good year next year.
6: I think that's part of it. I think the other driving factor has been liquidity. And when you look at what's happened in the US the last call at three months, the Fed isn't calling it QE. But effectively, we're seeing QE4 in terms of generating more liquidity. So I think there's this uh, expectation that you're going to continue to have the Fed at your back and a tailwind in the markets. And we don't see that this program ends early next year, as we all know. And so that could be a potential source of volatility next year.
2: I'm looking right now at equities, uh, S&P and NASDAQ a little a little down, but uh, the Dow up. All of them near their highs. And how much of the gains of next year have already been brought forward and priced in now?
6: So that's a key question. And I think we would argue, Morgan Stanley, a majority of the gains. And we rely not just our own on our own judgment and experience, but also on quantitative models. And our earnings model a year ago was telling us that earnings were at risk. And what we've seen the last three quarters is a meaningful slowdown from 2018. We've seen flat to down earnings. And frankly, our numbers for next year, 2020, uh, is predicting flat earnings once again. And the street's at plus 10%. So were that spread to normalize and the street to come down 10%, we think that provides the genesis behind a potential 10% correction. I want to be perfectly clear, though, because we think that's all it is. We don't think it's more than that. We think we're still amid a 20-year secular bull market that started in 2010, and we're just going through some volatility and some potential hiccups.
1: So if you see the potential for perhaps a 10% pullback in the equity markets, what are you telling your clients to do today to get some, build some cash or just get defensive? What's the call? Interestingly, our
6: clients are already uh, fairly conservatively uh, positioned already. So okay. when you look at our system, cash levels are above average versus the last 10 years. So we wouldn't be telling folks to necessarily raise more cash here. It goes back to my earlier comment at the onset about where you position within the equity market. We're saying avoid some of the more crowded, expensive areas of the market, like technology, like growth, that have really been on fire this year and be in some of the more value-oriented areas of the market.
2: If tech's not leading... Leading, what will?
6: Uh, I think that's a it's a really great question because you need something of size to lead mathematically. And so, if I look at what has size today, the money center banks are really what could what could lead. So that to us, if the Fed stays on pause and we have a resurgence in the in the yield curve, like we've already seen the last couple of months, wait, that could well, be a leader. Wait,
2: wait, I'm sorry. We need to have a just data check because we are seeing an eighth straight day of yield curve flattening today, which I believe is the longest streak in about two years. So we're, we're seeing a bit of a reversal already of that trade.
6: Yeah. And that's, I think, related to this day to day headline uh, back and forth around China in trade. Right. But I think that the, the greater point or the, the larger point I'd like to make is that if the Fed truly is on hold next year, you could see it an environment where the yield curve does steepen eventually. And given how cheap the banks are and given how big, again, their market caps are, that could be an area of leadership. Once you're once you're selling out of large cap technology, you need something else of size to buy into. You're not just going to go into micro cap stocks or small cap stocks. So that, in our opinion, is a logical source of funds.
1: Dan Skelly, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate uh, your smart thoughts there. Dan Skelly, Head of Equity Model Portfolios and Market Strategy at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management, joining us uh, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Kind of, you know, a little bit of caution there, perhaps, uh, you know, the potential for a a pullback in the markets next uh, year, but uh, not interrupting the longer-term bull market.
2: I think it's interesting, the idea of yield curve steepening, and this goes to something that Priya Misra oh was talking about of TD Securities earlier today where she was saying she expects the Fed to cut rates actually at the beginning of the year. And some people are expecting the consumer to show a couple signs of weakness heading into the new year as you see a stabilization in the manufacturing sector and that that could push the Fed over. And that sort of the base, it's increasingly becoming the base case of a number of these reflationary trade right. bets, which is interesting because the market is pricing in a September 2020 rate cut, not a March Earlier, 2020 right. rate cut. I just think it's an interesting kind of uh, dissonance there.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, just a quick data check here. We do have the S&P just, again, continues very flat today, up only 1%, the Dow uh, up 57%, so a, at 57 points, uh, so a very quiet day on the U.S. equity market.
2: I want to shift gears. We've been talking about the auto sector and it was interesting. Ken Monahan was saying that he likes bonds of automakers have gotten a little bit beaten up. A big question in my mind is resale values of used cars. And joining us now is Carl Brower. He's executive publisher of the Kelly Blue Book Uh, used as sort of the Bible uh, when it comes to determining what the value of your car is that you're trying to resell. Carl, I'd love to get your sense of what we're seeing in terms of trend lines uh, for car and truck values.
4: It's a great question. And, uh, you know, for years, the used car values have been very strong. Uh, and we kept thinking they were going to drop with all these cars coming off lease so many uh, so many times in the last uh, three years, a lot of vehicles coming off lease. We are finally now starting to see a shift down in used car values, not a tanking, not a dramatic shift, but a shift down, you know, to a, to a degree we hadn't seen in years. So it looks like uh, the new car pricing that's gotten, you know, high, it keeps going up. It's up around $38,000 now for the average new car. I think it's finally starting to drive some new car buyers back into the used market. Um, And used car values are are, are dropping a little bit as well.
1: So, Carl, I know you guys just published your blue book, uh, 2020 Best Buy Award winners. What are some of the highlights?
4: Well, you know, there's 16 categories and we've got a bunch of vehicles that we've been testing for resale value and ownership costs. Plus, of course, things like fuel efficiency, safety and technology and how well they drive. And I think the big winner this year was the Kia Telluride. First year that Kia has made a three row SUV and it won not just the three row SUV category, but also our best new vehicle category, which is kind of like just the overall you know car we're most impressed with for the year. So really a lot of value packed in that car starting around $32,000 and and a loaded one for low 40s that has heated and cooled seats and all sorts of great features. All
2: right, Carl, I'm sorry, we can't have you on and not ask you about the (laughs) Cybertruck. I mean, you must have known that it was going to be coming the Elon Musk Cybertruck uh, that was tested on stage and failed the shatterproof window test. What do you think of it? (laughs) Did you like it?
4: You know, uh, he threatened to have some kind of a sci-fi, you know, a Blade Runner truck, and he didn't. He didn't disappoint. He had a uh, a truck that nobody, I think, thought was real. Myself included, I kept waiting seriously for him to say, "All right, right, this is kind of an early sketch. Here's the real truck." No, nope, it was <laughs> it was that was the truck. Uh, and uh, I'm going to be interesting to see if the final production version looks like that. But I really think that it's good. There's this kind of built up fan club for Tesla models because uh, there'll be plenty of people who will want that truck as You're not Tesla gonna answer what you really fans. think
2: of this truck, are you? That's quite <laughs> well, clear from what I, you're saying.
4: I think it's just gonna be hard for traditional truck buyers to, to buy into it. I think if it had just been a pure electric truck with traditional styling, that would have been somewhat of a leap for traditional truck buyers, but you add in the styling, I just don't think he's gonna get much of that, you know, one and a half million volume full size truck market, which is a great market to tap into. Now A couple of years go by, it's dependable, it doesn't have any issues. Maybe you'll start to pull, you know, stifle off some of that huge segment. But for the near term, you're gonna mostly get Tesla or tech oriented fans, not really truck fans on that truck. So Carl, looking again at your
1: 2020 Best Buy Award winners, you know, outside of the pickup trucks, and again, the Cybertruck is Lisa's favorite, I think now.
2: You're trying to get back to real stuff, huh? I think so, I mean, (laughs) I don't
1: see, it's pretty much all uh, international nameplates. Where are the US car makers in terms of quality right now?
4: They've come a long way. And the truth is the market's more competitive than it's been in a long time. Every, you know, continent is contributing great cars, whether it's Asia or Europe or the US. Um, but you're right, that said, you know, when it comes to resale value, which is a key part of Kelly Blue Book, you know, and, and how we value vehicles, and we want people to buy a car in Manhattan and Manhattan suffer the least drop in value over time. That's one of the biggest, most expensive things people don't think about. They buy the car and they don't often think about the drop in value. And, the, and a lot of the, you know, Japanese cars and uh, some of the European cars, they do better in those areas than a lot of the U.S. cars still. It's a much tighter race. U.S. cars keep getting better and they're closer. But Hondas, uh, Hyundais, uh, Audis, they still have a lot of the advantage in that area.
2: Carl, just real quick here, 30 seconds, I'm wondering which kind of vehicle is seeing the biggest price drop in resale values?
4: Uh, You know, uh, sedans, as you know, the market has just kind of abandoned them. So I think when you've got uh, sedans, especially non-popular sedans, you still have strength in like a Honda Accord uh, or a Toyota Camry. But I think the reason that all the domestics bailed out of of the sedan market is, among other things, beyond not selling them when they're new is they don't hold their value when they're used they're just not they're just not popular cars with consumers today
1: carl Brower, thank you so much for joining us carl is the executive publisher of kelly blue book uh joining us on the phone they are based in irvine california giving us some thoughts about the some of the hot and maybe not so hot cars uh, coming for 2020 and of course i guess we now when we think about 2021 we can think about the cybertruck
2: I thought what he said was actually a really important point, which is it's one thing if they had a truck that just was Okay, electric. incorporated yep. electric technologies. It's another if it looks like it's yes, I'm going to repeat this, Doctor Who, all over again, if you start to you know have this sort of sci fi aspect, you're not gonna get the rank and file truck right. buyer.
1: Exactly. Which is
2: an interesting point.
1: But that probably wouldn't have been in keeping with who Elon Musk is anyway.